You'll please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. A couple of weeks ago, the clear intent of the sermon was to show the bigness, the vastness, the transcendence of God to wow us by His intricate ordering of all things. Today really is the opposite intent. Instead of the transcendent otherness that wows us, it's Jesus' eminence. Uh, his availability, that He's a very present help in time of trouble. We can look to Him during those storms we just sang about. Love the old hymns. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace. To trust Him more. Is trusting Jesus more the great longing of your heart? I hope it is. Because make no mistake, if you are God's, then God will certainly bring this glorious outcome about. Everyone who He justifies, He sanctifies. He's the author and He's the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, that He who began a good work in us, He will perfect it again till the day of His appearing. This morning we're going to gain some insight into how God brings this about by looking at Matthew 14, 22-33. We see here that immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side while He sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. And seeing the wind, he became frightened, and he, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. We're going to look this morning at three paradoxes, two contrasts, and the only one conclusion at which we can arrive. Let's begin with paradox number one, and that is the paradox of solitude and fellowship that Jesus sought after and enjoyed. It should be a model for us. Verses 22 and 23, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. 
First, let's, he made the disciples leave. That terminology is a bit surprising at first. He made them leave. That, the, the word means he forced or compelled them, urged, insisted that they go away. It's a strong term. When we consider the context, that shouldn't surprise us at all. We've just seen the contrast between crony King Herod and Christ the King Jesus. He is the true son of David who's establishing an everlasting kingdom where he will save his people from their sins. And the word made sets the tone for this entire narrative right off the bat. Jesus has authority over everything. Over the destinies of all men, John 5, 22. Over Satan and his fallen angels, Mark 1, 27. Over the holy angels who at any time he could summon to his aid, it tells us in Matthew 26, 53. He has sovereign control over everything in heaven and on earth, including the weather and all of nature. But that leaves us with a question. Why did he make the disciples go away? Why did he use this authority to send the disciples away? When we take the contextual clues, Matthew and the other Gospels seem uh, to... It, it seems to be related to the second group that he sends away. He sends the disciples away because he also needed to get them separated from the crowds who he's about to send away. Notice he didn't just send the disciples away. He sends the crowds away. You consider the implications of the timing of Jesus sending the crowds away, it's astounding. Chronology is not usually a consideration of the gospel writers outside of the general flow of birth, crucifixion, resurrection. All the event, other events that take place in the muddy middle, they're, they're organized more according to the gospel writers' emphasis than according to when they happened. But this one's different. Matthew, Mark, and John, all three, make a chronological connection here. Jesus feeds the 5,000s, then immediately he sends the disciples away, and then we see this narrative of him walking on the water. Why? Well, John makes the reason clear. In John 6, 13 through 15, when the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again into the mountain to pray by himself alone. We see another contrast here, don't we? Before, before we get into this eminence of Christ, we see a contrast between the Herodian kings and King Jesus. Remember, Herod flattered and bribed and schemed his way into becoming king according to the will and authority of men. But Jesus prayed, obeyed, and submitted to the will of the Father and would become king according to the authority of God. He wasn't depending on men to help him get there. He had no need of the crowds. He wasn't organizing a coup. And he clearly considered the enthusiasm of the crowds to be more of a danger to the minds of his immature disciples than it was an asset to his messianic mission. They were still carnal in their understanding of the kingdom. It was not beneath them to, at that time to even suggest burning the Samaritans alive because they wouldn't receive Christ. That's how they thought. We will put these people under submission with an iron thumb or with fire coming down out of heaven. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's still with the disciples. That's still how they thought. Not with a gospel message, but with authority, with, with crushing power. And they would argue over who would sit in which seats of honor we see in Luke 22 and Matthew 20, 21. Who's the foremost among us? Suffer it to me to sit on the right hand and my brother on the left hand in your kingdom. They, they're thinking all wrong. <coughs> Worldly prosperity is more dangerous than adversity. 
It's more dangerous to your soul than adversity. Jesus didn't want the disciples to taste popularity and become drunk on it. Popularity is a dangerous thing. You get a taste of it and you want to keep it and you start compromising to keep it and you're fallenness. The knowledge of God was through the path of suffering in the path of righteousness. That's how we know God. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, it tells us that we might know Him. How? In the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death in order that we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus wanted to get them away from the crowds. So He sent the disciples away first because it was going to take longer to get rid of the crowds and He didn't want them exposed to their toxic ideology of a big coup to overthrow the Roman government. So He made the disciples get on the boat and He sent them away so that He could get to what He most needed. And that's Jesus alone with the Father. He went up into the mountain. Look at 23, verse 23. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. When you see something repeated like this, you should understand it as an, as an ex, ex, exclamation mark. Jesus' aloneness is the primary emphasis. It, he went up in the mountain by himself to pray, and the redundancy of. And when he got there, he was alone. Yeah, that's what we mean when we say he went up there by himself, right? But it, it echoes it to show you he wanted to be alone. He needed to be by himself so that he could be alone with God. A Christian is never alone. Do you know that? You're never alone. Not for a moment. We exist in the presence of an omniscient, all-seeing, omni-wise, omni-benevolent, heavenly Father who desires intimacy with us as His children. He wants intimacy with His people. And it's in those times of prayerful solitude that the Father reveals Himself to us in intimate ways that are unavailable by any other means. Yes, there is a time to be with others and to serve others. Jesus demonstrated that in our last narrative, didn't He? But, every once in a, but once everyone was healed, and once everyone was fed, Jesus wanted to be alone with God. We get the ministry done, and then we want to go and be with other people and play. We need time to go and be alone. When we're not serving, we need to go be alone with God, rejuvenate our souls, seek the face of God Himself. Seek the face of the Father. Why did Jesus need to be alone with the Father? Well, He had to do the Father's will. The language of necessity is often applied to Jesus in reference to the will of the Father. I love the King James in John 4, 4. That'll make Matthew Malachosio look up when you mention the King James. But it says He must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because that was the will of the Father. He had an appointment there. How did He know? Because He walked with God. He knew where God wanted him, and he wanted to be where God wanted him every moment. And he was, he was aware of those things. What's God doing with me right now? John 4, 34, My meat or my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus could fast from food for 40 days and 40 nights, but he could not for one second neglect the work that the Father gave him to do. It was his food. John 5, 19, Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees that the Father is doing, and whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. 
Guys, are we that aware and intent on knowing God's will and walking in it? It takes us back to the wilderness temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' temptations neither began nor ended with him there in the wilderness immediately after his baptism. At the end of that session, the devil, it says, departed from him for until an opportune time. He was going to come back and tempt more. The enthusiasm of the crowds and the disciples to make him king was a lot like the third wilderness temptation, wasn't it? Remember in Matthew 4, 8 and 9, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you will worship me. Now the crowds become the tempter, trying to take him by force and make him king. Jesus could have easily avoided the cross and become king. Satan offered a shortcut. The crowds offered their support. And in all reality, Jesus didn't need any of it. He could easily conquer the Herods of the world. And the Rome itself was no match for the Son of God. He's already in chapter 8 calmed a huge storm of spoken immediately. It was stopped where the people said, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You think he can't use that to conquer everybody and force his way to the throne? He could just stop Herod's heart from beating and Caesar himself. But that wasn't the will of God. He sought, what does God want? God's ways are above man's ways. Mere human reason would guide any man down that path. But in order to do the Father's will, he had to know the Father's will. You do too. Your good intentions won't get you very far if you're not alone with God. Man, I just want to do what's right. Well, do you? Because you better get along with God and pray and seek Him in His Word to know the will of God before you can ever walk in it. And thus the robust prayer life of Jesus. Jesus was a man of prayer. Serious prayer. Lengthy, frequent prayer. He prayed in lonely places. On a hill in Gethsemane. In the morning, in the evening. Sometimes all night long. I love Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. The solitude that he sought so he could have fellowship with somebody more important than just mere men, with the Father himself. In Luke 5, 16, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray by himself. And when it was evening, he was alone there. Emphasizing that what took place was between Jesus and the Father only. The day had been long and taxing. Jesus found solace in the quietness with the Father. And thus prayer continued until the fourth watch of the night. So somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So he prays from the end of dinner. He sends them away immediately, gets rid of the crowds, and goes to pray. And he's prayed all the way, we find out in verses 25 through 26, to the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 4, three to, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Hours of time alone with God. So Jesus has spent most of the night in prayer If Jesus, the Son of God, devoted this much time to prayer, how do we expect to do the will of God apart from a serious devotion to prayer, we as mere men? During those times of prayer, the Father would immediately, undoubtedly remind Him 
of the, the path of glory, the path to glory, was a path that he already understood. Remember, he already told them in Matthew 12 that as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth. He knew where this was headed. There's no being forced to the throne. There's a willingly going through the cross to the throne, though. That's the path he would go. And undoubtedly, as he sought the Father's will for himself, he also prayed concerning how to instruct his beloved disciples because they didn't get this. Let me tell you this. We don't only need to think about how we can walk toward the Lord. We need to think about our brothers and sisters and think how we can encourage them in the midst of their storms, their difficulties, their trials, so that they go that path of suffering to glory as well. That they understand the will of the Lord. At the close of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus told Peter, Behold, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. Likewise, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And it's a certainty that he prayed for them on this occasion as well. God's will for the disciples is that they follow Jesus in this path of suffering. And we see Jesus teach this unforgettable, unforgettable lesson. And he doesn't teach this lesson here to them but so much by what he says, but by what he does in the rest of this narrative. What he's going to model. This situation that he's going to set up. And we see paradox number two. And that's mortal danger and supernatural safety. Look at verses 22 through 25. Danger and safety are paradoxical, aren't they? Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus refuses to be made king by the crowds, remembering that the path of the cross was the path to glory. And he prays all night, and we cut to the disciples being in this mortal danger. First of all, take note, they're on the sea. That matters. We need to understand symbolism in the Bible. And the, the sea symbolized something in the Old Testament. It symbolized uncertainty. It symbolized danger. Just the sea itself. Death and chaos. Remember that when God created the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. But the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. There's this uncertainty that He creates and then He orders it. And out of that He creates all things. He creates order from this chaotic sea. And that carries all the way through Scripture, that imagery. But not only are they on the sea, which carries that symbolism, but verse 24 tells us that they're a long distance from land. John tells us the exact distance, somewhere between 25 and 30 stadia. The, the greatest width of the lake is about 61. So they are smack dab in the middle of the sea. These men were a bunch of fishermen, so they normally wouldn't be in danger just by being on a boat. But if the boat was in the middle of the sea, and the idea of uncertainty, danger, death, and chaos are the intent of the sea, of what we should symbolize, what we should, what we should picture, he adds to it that they're in the middle of this sea and it's enhanced by the weather. Notice it's battered by waves for the winds were contrary. So we don't just see symbolized danger because they're on the sea, but we see real danger, not just symbolic danger. 
Matthew emphasizes the danger even more than Mark does. Mark mentions that they're straining in their rowing, emphasizing the difficulty of the work and the exhaustion that they would have experienced fighting the winds for hours. A big storm came, they're trying to get to the other side, and the storm's tossing them so much that they, it pushes them to the center of the sea, and they're trying to make progress toward the shore, and they can't get anywhere. And they've been doing that for hours Remember that Jesus sent them to the boat immediately after the crowds ate, and the disciples had been, and the, right after they gathered all the fragments up, it says immediately he told them, he made them go get on the boat. So, right after supper, until the fourth watch, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., they had been fighting the storm to get to the other side, something they normally could do very easily, but the storm's keeping them from it. Can you imagine how terrified you'd be on that boat? fighting the waves, the, the ship being battered because the winds are so contrary and the waves are so big. Undoubtedly, the disciples are exalted, exhausted and scared. Matthew's word for battered actually literally means tortured. I think one of the commentators I read after is correct when he says that human suffering is not far from sight here. That's the intention that he's pointing at. And readers, Nolan says, are invited to think in terms of their own experiences of being buffeted by life. How many of you are buffeted by life? I'm not allegorizing here, but it's appropriate to apply the uncertainty, the danger, the death, and the chaos that the disciples are facing in our narrative to our own situation. Jesus left them there. You remember, He could have said, Peace be still, and the storm's over. He's done that before. He doesn't do that. He's ordained your situation. Just this week in our church body, I've heard of a lot of metaphorical all-night rowing or metaphorical battered ships and tortured souls. There's a lot more than I'm going to mention. So if I don't mention you, don't be offended. And if I do mention you, don't be offended. But the wards, Abigail, apparently has decided that sleep is not necessary for her existence. She blamed the clock, and then they removed the clock, but the problem did not travel with the clock. Those late nights can be exhausting. I've been there. It can feel like a real trial. Brandon Stitt been working for a locally owned business and they were sold to a huge corporation. Things are changing. He's not comfortable working there. He, he didn't want to work for a big corporation. He's been thinking about what he wants to do next. He's been suffering from insomnia. So not only can Abigail not sleep, but Brandon can't sleep. The Duncans were driven out of his stable, secure job because he stood on conv conviction and trying to figure out what God wants for them. And they're torn. Now what's next? What's the next chapter? The uncertainty. The chaos of this metaphorical sea. Thomas's father passed away and his sister's an addict and they came to get the inheritance with threats and insults. He had the temptation to, in his words, pawn his honor. It was a strong pull. He was tempted toward violence. And the temptation was a real trial. We all know that Fred's Dad passed away and he's juggling work and care for Joan who he loves so much and the power of attorney didn't transfer and there's a risk of losing the estate. He's trying to figure all that out and meeting with lawyers and dealing with his difficulty. And then Lori, six weeks ago she lost her niece 
And then this week she lost her sister. And the family's struggling to move forward. Some of them are angry with the Almighty Himself. David and Lori are struggling to know what to do or say, or perhaps even more importantly, they're struggling to know what not to do or not to say and how they should pray. And then Chris Sublett, 34-year-old man with an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, a 3-year-old, and a 1-year-old. According to the schedule, Hannah is supposed to get pregnant any time now. <laughs> but now he's, you know, he started getting dizzy and losing time and passing out, battling crippling headaches. He had to turn down a job that he'd been offered because he isn't even allowed to drive anymore. And now the ENT says that from his experience it looks like a, a clinal chordoma, if I said that right. Some sort of cancerous tumor where the spine meets the skull. They don't know that's what it is, so you've got that uncertainty. You've got that fear. If you want to be kept up at night, Google clinal chordoma. I did, and read all you can find. The worry hole is a deep one. We certainly have some uncertain seas, don't we? We have some storm-tossed families, but our narrative isn't over. In the midst of the mortal danger, we see supernatural safety. Notice, he doesn't, just, he doesn't leave them there. He came. Jesus likely saw all this from the mountain. He's up on a mountain. The sea is down below him, and he can see what's going on. He can see the storm. He can see their boat. He didn't need some supernatural insight to know what was happening. And Jesus could have calmed the storm without, ever, without them even knowing He had done it. That he could have just said, peace be still. They wouldn't have known He did it. They'd have thought, well, wasn't that fortunate? How many times does God take care of us and we think, well, wasn't that fortunate instead of recognizing that God took care of us? That doesn't help us at all. Jesus knew what they needed. They didn't need calm seas. They needed more faith. We don't need calm seas. We need more faith. So he came. He wanted them to feel the danger for a time. He wanted them to feel the fear. Because then, when he eliminates the danger, the calm is much more satisfying. The calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. He wanted them to see his power. And His glory put on display. So He comes walking on the sea in the midst of the storm. Notice that Jesus didn't come running on the sea. He didn't just speak it and stop it. And He didn't hastily run. He confidently walked. When you're sovereign over all things, you don't have to hurry. When, when Lazarus was sick, Jesus didn't come immediately. He waited until he died. Well, you're too late. No, there's not too late when you're the Almighty. Ponder anew what the Almighty will, can do if with His love He be friendly. He came walking. There's no hurry in Jesus. What we're experiencing may feel out of control and exhausting to us. It certainly did to the disciples who had kept battling a storm-tossed boat and keeping it from capsizing for hours. But nothing is out of control for God. Jesus has spent time with the Father and He's walking in the will of the Father. And as He walks on the stormy sea, He knew exactly what He was doing. He's setting up a lesson 
Way better than something that can just be preached. It's something that's experienced. You know He teaches you a lot through what you go through. The sermons can be context to help us understand what we go through, but it's the what we go through often that brings maturity in the life of the Christian. It builds that faith and makes it strong. He'll show up in the Father's time, not when the disciples think it would be best, but when the Father knows that it would be best. Brothers and sisters, He's going to show up for you. Not always how you want Him to, but He's going to show up for you. The storm seems like an enemy, and it is to our flesh, but to our faith, the storm's a friend. It's in the storm that we learn who Jesus is. It's then that we see Jesus. They saw Him with their physical eyes and we see Him with the eyes of faith coming to us that He's confidently progressing through the uncertainty of our situation, through the difficulty of our metaphorical storms, in the midst of the, of the exhaustion from us doing everything we know to do. If you've been there in every situation I've mentioned, I bet every one of you are like, I've done all I know to do. I feel like I've done all the right things and it's still here. That Man, they, they felt that way. They'd battled that storm for hours. They were experienced sailors. Everything they'd done would normally get them to the other side, but they find themselves 30... I can't even say that word in, halfway in the middle of the sea. Having done everything they know to do in their expertise and they're still there. Sometimes we feel like we've done all we can do too, don't we? And we see Him triumphantly walking. And we realize that the, the gap that exists between the smallness of our strength and the enormity of our trials. Do you feel that? We, we get to the place of, I'm not able to fix this. The trial is too big. And I can't do anything about it. There's a huge gap between our strength and the trial. But that gap is nothing compared to the infinite gap between the comparable smallness of the trial in light of the enormity of His strength. We can't forget that. We're not looking to our experience or our ability to bail ourselves out. When we get to those situations, it's like dependence. Our faith is built victory by victory and the size of the difficulties that Christ has overcome on our behalf is directly related to the faith that it produces. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, I don't care how big they are, if it's a non-sleeping kid or if it's some sort of rare cancer, it doesn't matter how big it is. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing... You've got to know this. You can't forget this. That the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. And what is that perfect result? So that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He that began a good work in you will perform it till the day of Christ Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. But this is how it gets done. What you're going through is not unusual. He's not being mean to you. He's building you up in the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He's building you up. 
through the trial. Now let us turn to contrast number one, the disciples' great fear and Jesus' great courage. Verses 26 and 27, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Again, we see repetition for emphasis. Note the disciples' great fear. They were terrified when they saw him. They're already scared of their situation. And now they see him and it doesn't fix it. They become terrified. This word here is to be horrified, out of one's senses, to make haste, to tremble or quake with fear. And before you get too hard on these grizzled, manly disciples, consider how exhausted they were and how the battered boat in the midst of the storm already has them frightened. And then through the spray of the stormy sea in the middle of the darkness because it's between 3 and 6, the sun might be starting to come up. And you see out there a figure walking on the water. And they thought they were seeing a ghost. That was probably not their only reason for being afraid because most likely they took this apparition as an omen warning them that they were doomed men, that they were going to drown. So they're already frightened and now they see what they think is an omen. People believed in those omens, those signs, big time at those times. And they saw it and it terrified them. Their hearts sank. They thought it was a threat. They said, it's a ghost. They're about as bad as Herod is in his ridiculous superstition. Right? This is John the Baptist raised from the dead when he hears about Jesus. We see their instinctive superstition rather than a consistent theological belief. Have you ever slipped back into that sort of foolish fear? Whether you're in a graveyard late at night or a spooky house or maybe just your basement in the dark and you get these weird feelings, these super, they're irrational. Don't be too hard on the disciples. You're a lot like them and I am too, aren't we? We star. I think especially when a man is tired, he's capable of such foolish fear. People at that time believed that evil spirits lived in the sea. And some believed that anybody who had drowned in the sea haunted the waters. Just like they did. We can buy into popular beliefs in, um, in our community that, that, that we just start believing that become kind of wives' tales, don't we? We can buy in and start believing that superstitious stuff and synchronizing it with our Christian faith. It seems like that's what they've done. It's understandable, but make no, make no mistake, it's idolatrous. And when we do it, we should repent quickly. And they, they were terrified. They said it's a ghost. And then it says they cried out in fear. I giggled a little when I read what this means. This cried out. Kradzo. It means to scream, to shriek, or cry, or bawl aloud. So basically they went, ah! How embarrassing for those guys. I've done that too, by the way. You come around the corner in the middle of the night and you think you're the only one up and then your wife's right around the corner. Ah! Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, no, you know, put the fists up. Put them up, you know. These grown men, these fishermen, were so frightened that they scream and shriek like little girls when they see Jesus. Jesus is coming to help, but they fail to recognize Him. Sometimes Jesus is coming to help, and what He's sending as our help, what He's sending as an answer to our prayer, we don't recognize it, and we actually get more troubled. And I prayed for years that God would establish a church in Union County in Maynardville, and I was pastoring a church in Knoxville 
church was difficult and I was having a hard time and then it got very troubled and I was and I had a it was a good job. I was making good money. They were paying like seventy thousand dollars a year. There was comfort in that. There were theological differences and problems. And I had to stand and I lost my job. And I went from making $70,000 a year to $400 a week. And it took me a couple of months to find that job. Guys, I was scared. I've been there, Duncan. I've been there. What next? And in hindsight, it was the answer to prayer. He was showing up. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? He's taking care of us. He shows up and we don't recognize it. But make no mistake, even just because we don't recognize it don't mean it ain't so. He's taking care of us. When God governs according to His wisdom instead of ours, we often question whether His goodness... We, we, we either question His goodness or His control often. But look at Jesus' great courage in contrast to the disciples' great fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. The calm of Jesus as He walks on the sea in the midst of the storm is obviously written in a way to contrast it with the uncertainty and the fear of the disciples. They're shrieking like girls and He's taking a stroll on top of the chaotic sea in the middle of a storm and He's walking. He ain't even in a rush. He ain't threatened at all. But despite the fact that Jesus is calmly walking on the sea in the middle of a storm that's so big that it's hindering these seasoned sailors from getting to the other side of the sea, Jesus doesn't mock them despite the fact that they're terrified, despite the fact that he, they say it's a ghost and they're believing the superstitious stuff. And you think He didn't hear them shriek like girls? He didn't make fun of them. Guys, don't mock people who have less faith than you. Meet them where they are and love them to where they need to be. That's what Jesus did. You're Christ-like in that. And he told them, he said, take courage. Jesus recognized that they were scared and immediately took steps to calm them. He said first, take courage. The King James translates this word often of be of good comfort or be of good cheer. He says, take courage, be of good cheer. Not, not just don't be scared, but be happy. Why? Because it's I. It is I. I love this part. In all three Gospels, Jesus identifies himself with this, it is I, the ego me. <laughs> this is the expression that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where God's revealing himself, where he says, I am that I am from Exodus 3.14. It's the same way it's translated there. He's saying, God is here. <laughs> People think that the Bible doesn't claim the deity of Christ. They need to read the Bible. He's saying, I am is here. And the disciples were scared and in need of that reassurance. And it was important that they should know right away that the one that they were seeing was no ghost. So Jesus identifies himself in this thinly veiled allusion to his deity. And on top of that, let's not forget that Jesus is walking on the water here and saying it is I. And these men know their, their Old Testaments. A stroll on the waters is something reserved for God only. Job 9, 8 says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So now Jesus is treading on the waves of the sea. God alone does that. 
And then they see him treading on the waves of the sea, and he says, Hey, go, hey, me, I am. I am God, and I'm here for you. Don't be afraid. I'm here for God. Worshippers of Christ Jesus, God is here for you. you. Little you. He's here for you. A potent symbol of the Creator's control over the uncertainty, over the danger, over the death, over the chaos. So since they are Jesus' disciples, and since He's the ego, me, and has authority over the sea itself that He's demonstrating by treading right over the top of it, by walking on it, how should they respond? Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. Hey, that might sound challenging if you just look at your trials. But if you remember, Ego Ami is your God. If you remember, He's there. It's not outlandish in the middle of whatever you're going through to say, Don't be afraid. The storm's nothing. This... It, this is an imperative to its command. Don't be afraid. It's not a suggestion. It's, an, it's a command and an encouragement at the same time. It, it's a, a, this, this note of reassurance runs right through the gospel. You see it in 120, 10, 26, and 28, and 31, 17, 7, 28, 5. You see it over and over again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Matthew likes to make the point that Jesus' own people need never fear. He is the good shepherd, and we are his fortunate sheep to have such a good shepherd. He'll take care of you. This message isn't just prominent in Matthew. Fear not is in the Bible 365 times. One for every day of the year. Leap leap year, you got one one day. You're going to have to fend for yourself. Fear is an atheistic feeling. Rebuke your fear. If it's not of God, rebuke it. It's an atheistic feeling. It's the opposite of faith. It's saying, I don't believe that God is. And if I do believe that He is, I don't believe He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You're saying one or the other. He either isn't strong enough or isn't good enough to take care of you. That's the only thing that can produce fear is denying one of those twin pillars of our faith. And though without faith it's impossible to please Him for those who come to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek after Him. If you have those two pillars of faith that God is good and God is sovereign, then how can you fear? You can fulfill Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You look there and you can do that. And you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. People can watch what you're going through. And they can see your steadfast confidence and resolve. And it will confound them. It will befuddle them. Why? Because you actually believe this stuff. There's fruit with your faith. You're different than the rest of the world. Had they not learned from his most recent miracle who he was? He just fed 5,000 people. Actually, as we said, probably more like 20,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. But Mark tells us in Mark 6, 51-52, when he got in the boat with them, picking up on this narrative, the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. 
For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. God, God does so much for us and we gain no insight from His past victories so often. You look back on the myriad of things He's done for you and you gain no insight. So He keeps teaching the same lessons over and over again, doesn't He? They didn't learn through just provision without suffering. What He knew they had to learn through a lack of provision, through the path of suffering. Had to let them feel the fear for a while because it affects you differently then. And it's a kindness. It's not me. It's a kindness to drive you to the enoughness of Jesus. He drives you there. You're enough for me, as we sang earlier. Paradox number three is Peter's faith, his recurring doubts, and his enduring faith in that order. Verses 28 through 30, Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. First Peter's faith. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. Guys, that's a bold request, isn't it? As a fisherman, Peter knew and respected the dangers of the sea. But he's demonstrating a knowledge and respect in the protection of Christ. Yeah, the sea represents uncertainty and danger and death and chaos. But he says, oh, you're Jesus, you're the ego of me, you're walking on the water, bid me to come. I can go with you and I know you'll take care of me. We can follow wherever Jesus commands us to go if we believe him. We can. What do we have to fear? Peter had the willingness, even the desire to be commanded by Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you not have deep within your soul the desire to accomplish great things? Even miraculous things to the glory of God. Do you? You feel it? People often look down on such ambition. But a man's desire to be enabled by God to do amazing things is not inherently evil as long as he desires to do them to the glory of God. Will the fallen human heart mingle the goodness of such desire with, prayer, with pride and vanity? Without a doubt, there'll be times that you will. But will the fallen heart that has a desire to lead a quiet, unnoticed life mingle such desires with sloth and the vanity of ease? Well, yeah, they'll do that too. And that's where Martin Luther's Famous misquoted quote comes from when he says, Sin boldly. Do the right thing. Seek to do great things to the glory of God. Will there be sin in it? Don't let the fact that there will be sin in it keep you from wanting to do great things to the glory of God. Get out of the boat. Fearlessly get out of the boat. God, command, show me where you want me to go and let me walk in your will and take care of me and go and do. Have a holy ambition. We must not condemn that which is praiseworthy. The very thought that if Jesus can walk on the water with strength imparted by Him, so can I, is admirable. We need much more of that in the church of God, not less. Peter is asking Jesus to command him, not commanding Jesus to command him. Note the first word, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. There's a submission there, isn't there? Peter's asking Jesus to, um, to command him to do something unexplainable by human means. And he believes that if in the path of obedience, as he ventures out of the boat, that God will enable him to walk on the water. Know this, 
that with God there is no can't. God will enable you to accomplish whatever He commands you to do. I hear people say, I just can't lead my wife. Yes, you can. He commands you to and you can. I just can't get my children under control. Yes, you can. Seek His face. Do things the right way. Trust in His power and His ability to help you. You can. He commands you to do it. He'll enable you to do it. I can't be faithful to my church attendance with my work schedule. Yes, you can. He commands both things. You're going to have to figure it out. You can do it. I can't give generously to the church and pay all my bills. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You might have to work more and you might have to do without a few things, but you can do these things. You might not be doing these things, but you can. Because there are things God requires of you and He will enable you to do what He commands you to do when you're His child. He will. You can. Peter asked Jesus to command him to walk out on the water. And Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for that holy ambition, but grants the request. And Peter walked on the water. The fact that when, Jesus, when Peter began to sink, Jesus immediately took hold of him means that Je Peter almost got all the way to Jesus. He made it a ways. We usually remember that Peter's faith failed, but we should bear in mind that it took courage for the apostle to venture out on the water at all. And let me, let me warn you of this. Sometimes you can be treading on water, but you, as a mere man, you are susceptible to, even though you've had past victories, having future failures. And Peter does. Look at his recurring doubt in verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. Again, that fear came back. And remember, fear is what? It's atheistic. He didn't believe, and he began to sink. Ultimately, Peter's attention moved away from Jesus back to the storm. And Matthew says he saw the wind, which means the effects of the wind, the movement of the waves and the boat, the spray and the feel of the wind. And there's no doubt it would have been frightening. And you forget about the one who controls it all. And Peter forgot. The result that was Peter became afraid. He was frightened or panicked, it can be translated. And the fear was accompanied by the beginning of sinking. Peter's shifting of concentration from Jesus, who could enable him to overcome difficulties, to the difficulties in which he found himself was disastrous. It wasn't that he lost faith in himself. Had his faith been in himself, he never could have taken the first step to begin with. But his, his faith in Jesus was strong enough to get him out of the boat and walking on the water but not strong enough to endure uninterrupted through the entire storm. But even in this doubt, we see again, enduring faith. Peter's faith did not utterly fail. He had lost faith in Jesus' ability to keep him above the water, but he still trusted Jesus at some level because immediately he cried out for help. He began to sink, and he didn't say, i got to deal with this. He immediately cried out, Lord, save me. It takes our minds to Psalm 69, 1-3. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. There's this messianic overtone again here, isn't there? The essence of true faith is nothing more and nothing less than trust. That you trust God. Isn't it true that the greatest of Christians are blessed with true faith, but not perfect faith? You've got faith. It's true, but it's not perfect. If Peter had no faith at all, 
then he would have never gotten out of the boat. Then again, when he began to sink, he would have started to flail his arms about, desperately trying to get back in the boat. He would have trusted in the boat or in himself. He certainly wouldn't have cried out to Jesus if he had no faith. And the fact that he cried out is proof of the reality that he did trust Jesus. Are you there maybe? We don't want to stay there, but thank God you're there. You're not shaking your fist at the Almighty. You're not angry with God. You're showing, my faith is failing, but it still exists. Help me. You're all I've got. Help me. Lord, save me. In contrast number two, his faithfulness in the midst of Peter's doubt. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Despite the weakness of Peter's faith, we see Jesus' immediate response. It says, immediately when he cried out, he stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Now I'm going to tell you this. This is very important to remember. Peter was never nearer to his Lord than when he was sinking. He was closer to the Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. It was then that he expressed his utter dependence and Jesus literally took hold of him. Guys, get to that place of utter dependence and cry out. Immediately, he stretched out his arm and took hold of him. It was when Peter was in trouble that he was driven to Jesus and was the closest to him. That's why Jesus permits storms to come into our lives. As long as life is going smoothly, we might genuinely trust in Jesus for salvation. We might genuinely be true Christians in that way, but our faith can be distant. It can be abstract. It can even fall to the background and be peripheral. Something we believe, in it, but it's back there and we forget it. It's not central to who we are and everything we do. We trust Jesus true enough, but if truth be told, we trust more in ourself. We trust more in our abilities. But then you let trouble come. Big trouble. Trouble that we know is too big for us. And suddenly we're confronted with our own lack of ability and our weakness. And we're driven to Jesus simply because we have nowhere else to turn. I wish it didn't take that, but it does often. For us to actually experience the security of true faith, He has to drive us to the point of desperation. And He drives us there so that we cleave to Him. It's bad for our flesh, but it's good for our faith. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. What do we want? Do we want comfort and ease or do we want strong faith? What do we want? Christian, if you're a Christian, you want strong faith more than anything else. And you won't begrudge the difficulties that drive you to your Savior. You'll kiss the rod. And you'll come receiving the difficulty as chastisement for the weakness of your faith and you'll thank God for it. Because every son who the Father receives, he chastens. And those who live without chastisement are bastards and not sons. He deals with you as a son when the difficulties come and it drives you to him. How could we begrudge it? Of course we don't. It's at times like that that our faith grows strong. Like a scared, panicked child, desperate to be held by a parent, Jesus is honored by our cries to Him for help, despite the fact that the very presence of fear and anxiety is an insult to His goodness and strength. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful still. He cannot deny Himself. Your littleness, the smallness of your faith, 
It doesn't turn Jesus off. The presence of your faith draws you to Him and it draws Him to you. You draw near to God and He draws nigh to you as well. And He gives a gentle rebuke though. There is a time for a gentle rebuke. He says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? You have little faith. Praise the Lord that it's you of little faith instead of you faithless one. You probably have felt guilt for the fear you've had today. But praise God for the faith you've had. It might be small, but it's real and it's a gift from God. And thank Him for it. You have little faith. You have faith. And we are saved by the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. The man with little faith is just as saved as the man with the greatest of faith. Because he's got the same Savior. And he asks them, why did you doubt? What a wonderful question, guys. A Christian's fears quickly disappear at the simple asking of such questions. Ask your brothers and sisters when you see them concerned, why are you afraid? Don't forget who we're worshiping. What a wonderful question. It'll melt away the fear, the uncertainty, the chaos. It'll drive them back to this place of greater faith. Obvious questions with obvious answers remind us of truths we believe. You might be afraid that some of the things we say are cliché. Thank God that they're so true they've became cliché. And when somebody says it to you, don't say, oh, that's cliché. Say, thank you, God, for such a bedrock truth that I should have known. Thank you for this brother that's reminded me of it. And let it do what it should do. Drive you back to the ego of me who is able to tread on the waters. The verb used for, the, for doubt will appear again in Matthew 28, 17. After Jesus has risen from the dead, he's, they're going to meet Him on the mountain right before they receive the Great Commission. They've already seen Jesus raised from the dead and it says that some of them wavered. Same word, doubted. It tells us that even after the resurrection, and we know from our own experience, doubt's not over. God is long-suffering, patient with you in the middle of your doubts, your fears. As insulting as they are, He loves you right through the middle of them. And at the end of this, what do we find in verse 32? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Boom! It shut off like a faucet. It's just over. There's no guarantee that Jesus will stop whatever He's bringing you. Whatever, whatever is producing in you the fear, anxiety, the difficulty, or the exhaustion. But it is a clear indication that He's able to shut it off at any time. And that in His goodness, once the trial has served its purpose, He will remove it. He will keep this trial on you as long as He has a purpose for it. And He will remove it when He's done with what He's doing with the trial. So Abigail might not sleep through the night for a while. Brandon, you might not either. Wherever God leaves the Duncans, there's going to be things that they gain and there's going to be things that they lose. Thomas' sister might not kick her addictions and the boyfriend might not stop being an ongoing agitation. You might be wrong. You might see him again. And it might be worse next time. Fred, you might lose everything and struggle forever to care for your mom. You might have to work more and harder and longer. Helm's family might continue to struggle with suffering and death and unbelief. And Chris might be at the beginning of a long, difficult, painful battle against some rare disease. We don't even know what it is right now. But God can remove it in an instant. And if He doesn't, 
If he doesn't, it's because he's doing something for your good and his glory by the presence of it. And we rest there. Romans 8, 35-37. I've not had you turn anywhere today. We've had no Bible drill, but I want you to turn to this one. In Romans 8, 35-37. And we're almost done. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to the slaughter. But in all these things, not in spite of all these things, in all these things, in what things? In the tribulation, in the distress, in the persecution, in the famine, in the nakedness, in the peril, in the sword, in the cancer, in the, in the crying babies at night. You add to this, in anything that is, that is causing you consternation, difficulty, fear, trouble, trial, in all these things, not in spite of them, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You are being conformed to the image of Christ by these trials. It's through these trials He's getting you to the finish line. Don't begrudge them. He'll stop the wind if the, stopping the wind is best for you. And He'll let it keep blowing if that's what's best for you. But make no mistake, He cares about what's best for you. And that leaves us with just one conclusion. And it's the conclusion that they arrived at in verse 33. Those who were on the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Let's look first at what they did. They that were on the boat worshipped Him. He's revealed Himself as the Ego and me, as the Great I Am. He walks on the water like only God can do, and they worship Him, which only belongs to God alone. You only worship God. Angels always refuse worship, but Jesus receives it. Why? Because He's God. And this word here for worship, prosuke, it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself in front of, that I will now yield to you. Whatever you're ordaining, I yield to you. Brothers and sisters, yield to God. And whatever you're going through, whatever He's ordained, yield to Him, prostrate yourself before Him. The worship of the disciples points to the worship of the church. In Jesus we encounter God, we worship God, and we worship Jesus as the Son of God. And what they said, you are certainly God's Son. What progress. Remember when Jesus stilled the storm? When, he was on, when they were all on the boat and they woke Jesus up and they said, What manner of man is this that the wind and seas obey him? They said, What manner of man is this that time? This time they say, This is God's son. They made some progress. He was an awesome man in chapter 8. He's God's son. After he's gotten them through the trial, after they felt the fear, after he's let it rest on them for a while, they progressed in their faith. When he walked on the water in the midst of the storm and allowed it to cease immediately, when he was finished with the object lesson, they got the point. Truly, you are the Son of God. It's a strong affirmation of certainty. There's no room anymore for doubt. They affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, which means that they're putting him in the highest place. You are the ego and me. God alone treads on the waves. 
This is the first time that Jesus has been addressed by the disciples with this full title. It will happen again and again throughout the rest of the book. And it's happened again and again throughout the rest of church history too, hasn't it? Praise God for the first time you recognized Christ. May we worship Him and say, Surely you are God's Son, steadfastly to the end. May May this sermon drive you in the middle of your trials to that affirmation and may you double down with confidence and assurance so that I can say, Do not be afraid. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your power and your might. Lord, we saw over the last few weeks how you intricately ordain everything in your transcendence and your otherness that we can't even reach you or understand you fully. But Lord, you're a very present help in time of trouble. That you meet us where we are and that you care for us and take care of us. Lord, we thank you for that. Pray, Lord, that you protect our hearts from doubts. Lord, that you use the storms that we endure for our good to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. When you're done with them, you remove them. And when we need another, that you bring it back. Regardless, we prostrate ourselves before you in worship and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.